Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. All right. We're continuing on with the grand story, and uh, I want to look at why the grand story matters. We're just going to start with a quick recap, because sometimes we lose focus on that, right? So we start going through a series, and then very, you know, shortly, in a room this size, guaranteed there are, I don't know, how many different, is there going to be a thousand different uh, needs represented in here? Maybe more, maybe less? But there's many, and, and how do you address all of them in a message? And yet what I love about the grand story and about even the time I've gotten to just pray and meditate and study myself is that it reminds me again and again that my life is not about me and my needs. Those are secondary. We're actually a part of God's grand story. It's about him. And and there isn't almost anything better that we could do than spend time together with the church, with the body, and discover more about who God is and his plan for us and mankind. It's a story about him, so in that sense, this story is actually going to address all of our needs, our primary needs, that's what it's doing. Have you ever noticed that the, the times you struggle the most, where you feel the most anxious or hopeless or disconnected, as believers anyways, are those times when you take your eyes off of Jesus? Those times when you're focused right in on all of the problems in your life. And the song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth grow strangely dim. That's what I love about the grand story. But that's not the only thing. The grand story ties together. And and again, I'm just trying to, to weave it through. And many others have probably done a much better job. But I get the blessing of standing up here and doing it uh, the way that the Lord shows it to me. But I'm trying to tie it together in such a way that it's bringing together all of Scripture and helps us see it as one cohesive narrative. But that's what the Bible is. That's what the grand story is. It tells us, you know, it reveals God. It reveals humanity to us tells us what's gone wrong. It reveals God's plan of redemption. Shows us the solution. Shows us our destiny. Also reveals what our part is to play. So it's the answer. It's the ultimate answer to our me culture, isn't it? Right? An entire Bible, a book that's dedicated to a story that is all about God. Every single sentence points back to him. So... We do have other things, though, and reasons why it matters. I figured I would give us a few me answers, too, right? Isn't that good? (laughs) We all like some me answers. I like them, too, by the way. So there's two attacks that we're seeing on truth. This is truth. Maybe let's say that together. The Bible is true. There we go. You know, it seems like a silly thing to say. Don't we all believe that when we're in here? But whether you go out in the culture or even within the church, especially in the West, we see an assault on this book, an assault on truth. And what's interesting to me is we hear echoes that go all the way back to Eden. Did God really say? It's not a new problem that we're facing. It's an ancient one. Did God really say? Outside the church, we see abortion and maid, distortion on marriages. You know, we always, I hear sometimes, the culture's getting better in the West. Overall, it's getting better. And I understand. I understand a little bit of that. You know, if you look at history and you say, well, yeah, look at Rome before, you know, Constantine legalized Christianity and some of the horrendous things that they were doing there. Totally, I get what you're saying. But you know, our culture isn't getting better. We're getting better at renaming horrible, awful things. I mean, we look at the murder that's happening and the, to the terrorism in Israel, and we say, I'm so glad that's not here, that innocents don't die. But what about abortion? What about medically assisted dying? Is that not here? Is that not the murder of the weak and the innocent? The young and the old? The vulnerable? It's a little wonder, you know, we see the push in the schools, the breakdown of the nuclear family. 
The breakdown of the gender binary, that that's even being questioned, is beyond me. But it's happening. It's already here. It's not starting. It's, it's already well on its way. Little result, you know, little wonder that people are more confused, anxious, depressed, and addicted than any other time that I know of. Because we need truth. Truth is the foundation for healthy living, for the best life now. I, I hate that phrase sometimes, right? Live your best life now. I don't like it on the prosperity side, right, in that sense. But on the sense of living in accordance with God's word will enable you to live your best life now. Because you won't live it for you, you'll live it for him. And that's what matters in the end. And you'll be able to face your struggles with him instead of alone. And you'll be able to bear fruit that lasts. But anyways, religion is being sold as a crutch and a bad one at that. More and more, we're being called bigots, misogynists, racist, and even abusive. I've heard that one too. And yet, the answers, the real answers, for the, for the issues that I've talked about are all found in here. And history proves that when men and women follow God and follow the God of the Bible, that we actually see a lot of turnaround in those areas. But there's also attacks inside the church. We're seeing the rise of progressive Christianity. We've talked about that here, not at length, but we have mentioned it a bunch of times. And, you know, progressives, I'm not sure I can, because I'm not progressive, I'm not sure I can fully explain the heart behind it. I don't, I don't know that I'm qualified to do that. I can just explain what I think. I'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt. Because sometimes you can look and say, well, why? If you're going to just throw out the Bible, if you're going to throw out truth, why do you even bother following the Lord in the first place? You know, I don't think it starts there. I think it starts with trying to remove the offense of the cross. So the culture doesn't like what's being said in the Old Testament. The culture doesn't like God's sexual ethic. The culture doesn't like who God is. We're me culture. So then you just start to take this part off, and maybe God didn't really say this, and maybe he didn't say that. And before you know it, the Old Testament is removed. Genesis is a myth. The sexual ethic was outdated, and we've evolved since then. People didn't know better in the Old Testament. We never needed to sacrifice. Then it goes to Jesus didn't die on the cross for your sins. And lastly, usually it ends with hell isn't real or it's not actually that bad. Don't worry about it. Why don't we just erase repentance and judgment and in the end, maybe we all just go to heaven anyways. Truth is under attack. Outside the church, inside the church. Jesus said, do not watch out that you are not deceived. Watch out that you're not deceived. That's why I love going through the grand story. You know what we're highlighting? The things, now we can't highlight everything. I would love to, but then it wouldn't be short. I already have trouble staying within my time. But I'd love to just, we, we will preach through the whole word, but I'm trying to summarize it in a way that makes it simple so that when someone says, ah, oh, Genesis is just a myth, you actually know, whoa, 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 that's part of the grand story. You can't just take that off, creation. You can't take creation off. Or someone says, you know, we're not born of the sin nature. You can say, whoa, 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 whoa. That is not what scripture says. Or they say, God didn't die for your sins. Or they say, Noah, you know, the flood wasn't real. I'm trying to give you a foundation to stand on that you can hold to. So it's not, you know, the enemy has a much harder time saying, did God really say? You know, there's a problem that I've talked about many times, and it's just believe in Jesus. <laughs> Do just believe in Jesus. You know what I'm trying to avoid? Pendulum swinging, <laughs> right? So I say there's a problem with just believing in Jesus. I'm not saying the problem is to switch over and don't believe in Jesus. I'm saying you have to look at your faith as more than a personal faith in Jesus yourself. It's not just a personal relationship with Jesus. It's an entire framework or a lens through which you see life, that you can know God, that you can understand why you're here, what's wrong with the world, what's God's going to do about it, where we're headed, and what's supposed to matter within your life? That's all I mean by it's not just, don't just believe in Jesus. We, gotta, we have to know it so we can apply it and move it forward, right? All right, you guys get this already. Peter also said, remember I talked about uh, it's not good enough just to live in a house, we're called to build houses. Remember that? Uh, maybe you don't, but it was like a month ago or something. Right, we're not just called to live in houses, we are called to build houses, so to speak. We're called to engage, not just be a disciple, but uh, if you are going to be one, you have to go and make disciples. So Peter says, be ready. 
Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So that's what we're doing. All right, so I gave some me answers and I gave some God answers and ultimately it's all about him. Anyway, so what better thing could we do? Recap. We're gonna go through recap, creation of Abraham. Uh, we'll go right through the back there. I think I'll have it on there. Yeah, there we go. So we started in creation. I'll just go really fast here. Then we hit the fall. Remember, creation was in the Garden of Eden. And then we hit the fall. Uh, Satan tempts Eve. Eve bites the fruit, gives it to Adam. We have the fall, right? The curse comes onto mankind. Right away, we get the first promise that we've looked at, the Edenic promise in Genesis 3.15. And that begins God's unfolding plan of redemption. And out of those four themes, right? We said four themes, five promises, one hero, right? Four, five, one. The third theme is the longest one, and we're still in it. Right? Remember, this is the, the living word, and it's living in such a way that we're actually moving through time. It already lays it out, but we're moving through time with every year, you know, we go through another page, kind of a, is one way to look at it. But we're in redemption now, and so that's what we've been looking at. So promise one, the Edenic covenant, the serpent crusher. Then we saw Noah, remember in the flood and the reset and how that wasn't, you know, Noah wasn't the plan of redemption. He wasn't. And then we saw the promise too, the Abrahamic covenant. We went and talked about that last week, and we see the seed passing down through there, but then we also see they were going to be a great nation, a righteous one. They were given a promised land, or were going to get a promised land, and they were going to be a blessing to all the nations. Incredible. And then all, that one was unconditional and eternal. So now we're going to keep moving forward today, and we're going to hit Joseph. So uh, Abraham kind of now to Joseph. Abraham in many ways is our father of faith. So that's what we talked about last week. Abraham was a yes guy. He said yes coupled with action, which is what we've been talking lots about. That's really what faith looks like. Yes, and then coupled with action. Yes, action. And in the end, what God is going to look for when, he, when, he's, when we stand before him is he's going to look at our faithfulness to that. Were we faithful? Not were we perfect, because we aren't. Were we faithful to the call? And then we finish with a summary on Joseph. All right, so on the Joseph there. Now, by the way, just a, I'm not gonna, I'll, I'll tell you in just a moment. By a show of hands, did anyone notice anything weird about my summary with Joseph last week? Don't be shy. Oh, I see one. Anyone else? Well, anyhow, you might have thought, oh yeah, that, what, do you, what was wrong with your story with uh, Joseph? I'll tell you what was wrong. My notes were right, but I told it wrong. I conflated, I put two stories together. Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and Joseph and Pharaoh. So I did not do that to test you guys. I did it to test myself, apparently, totally by accident. Anyhow, I realized right after I was done uh, that I had done so, and then I went and looked back, and I'm like, I can't believe I did that. And I think I've had two people so far that I've, and a third one in here. So, okay, well, anyhow. Study the scriptures for yourself, right? I'll just keep you on your toes here with my summaries. Anyhow, back to this, redemption. So now we're going to talk Joseph to Moses. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time today. And then we're going to end on the Mosaic Covenant. So remember Joseph from last week? Joseph, he's a dreamer. And he tells his brothers and his dad about the dream. I'm summarizing again this time. I'll get it right. But he, he summarizes his dream to them. They're all bowing down to him. And it angers his brother. And even his dad scoffs at it a bit. That ends up getting him betrayed by his brothers. So Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. He's falsely accused. He lands up in prison. And from prisoner now, before the, before the Pharaoh of the day, who's had a dream that he's terrified of, and that's where God gives him the revelation of the dream. Right, there was gonna be seven years of plenty and seven years of want, seven years of famine, and Pharaoh is so impressed that God would speak through him because no one else could do it, that he puts him as second in command. So you go from brother and son to rejected, to slave, to prisoner, to second in command in the most powerful nation on the earth at the time. And that's where that, that story kind of lands up, and it's incredible. And what I love about uh, Joseph, I just want to point out one thing, and then we'll move on, uh, because we've got to get to Moses. Nope, that's not it. I had it maybe. Yeah, there we go. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Go and read the story of Joseph, and then try to imagine, I'll keep saying that word imagine, try to put yourself into the, into the shoes or sandals of Joseph himself. Being rejected, sold into slavery. We can't relate to all of the rejections, certainly we can. And then to get that heart, that's the unoffendable heart we talked about a year ago. 
right? You meant it for evil, God meant it for good, and so blessed be the name of the Lord. God means it for good. I think that's incredible. That's something to strive for. But this is where our story picks up, and now we'll go into Exodus. And now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to the people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us. So the new Pharaoh doesn't know Jacob or Israel has died, right? And, and the new Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph or the people of Israel. And what's interesting is God's, you know, remember he said he was going to make them into a great nation. Well, they're already multiplying and they're growing and they're amassing a, a, a numbers, the population. And Pharaoh is afraid. But imagine now, I want you to get back into, I'll keep pointing us back to the story. Get into the life of being an Israelite in those days. You know the story, the grand story. They're not ignorant of it. Oral culture, they know it better than we do up until then. They don't have the whole thing like we do, right? But uh, they knew all of everything that's coming up to that point. They knew about the problem with mankind. They knew about the promised serpent crusher. They knew about the Abrahamic promise. That they were going to have land of their own, that they were going to be a big nation, that they were going to bless others. So they know all of this, but now this Pharaoh is treating them harshly and they become slaves in a, in a foreign land. Now I wonder sometimes, you know, did they know, did they look back to Abraham's prophecy? Remember Abraham, when, when the Lord gave him that dream, the Lord actually showed him that your people, that will be many descendants, but they're going to be slaves and sojourners in a foreign land. And they'll be mistreated. He even gave them the time frame. I wonder if they went back to that and that gave them strength. Or I wonder if they were wondering, why God and where are you? You don't get all of that. But I can imagine that being very real to them. Anyways, I can only imagine that they were longing for redemption. You know, the Maranatha cry that we talk about. The come quickly, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. I imagine they were thinking the same thing. Come and deliver us, Lord. Come and save us from our struggles. Come and deliver us from bondage. Deliver us from the Egyptians. Well, Pharaoh is fearful of population growth. They continue to expand no matter how hard he treats them. And finally, he gives an edict, an order that, they go in, that the midwives would kill every newborn son. But the females would live. Can you just imagine that? I can't imagine living in a country like that where every son could just be ordered to be killed and that would happen. Well, the midwives don't do it, but in this whole time frame, Moses is born. And Moses is born to a Levite family. His parents put him in a basket to try to keep him safe. And the basket is discovered by one of Pharaoh's uh, daughters. And she actually calls him Moses drawn out of the water, right? Drew him out of the river. And she calls him Moses, and he's raised a Hebrew in the Egyptian court. He's educated. And again, that's where our story picks up here, Exodus 2, 11 to 12. One day when Moses had grown up, so now he's, he's raised as an Egyptian, he knows he's a Hebrew. But one day he's grown up and he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one there, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So he kills this Egyptian. And later on the story goes on to talk about how he goes and talks to two of his fellow Hebrew brethren and they just look at him and say, are you going to kill us too? That's when he realizes his sin is going to find him out and Pharaoh finds out and wants to kill him and he runs. I mean, I think most of us would run. I would run. He runs and he leaves Egypt, leaves everything he knows and he lands up in Midian and that's, and that's you know, uh, or, uh, that's where we'll continue on here. He becomes a shepherd. Yeah, I'll skip forward here. He becomes a shepherd and then it's in this place, yeah, where the people of Israel begin to, crawl, uh, to uh, cry for help. Sorry, I lost my spot on my page here. There we go. Yeah, so he runs to Midian, gets married, uh, meets his father-in-law, all that stuff, becomes a shepherd, and it's this place where the Lord meets with him. But first, the people of Israel begin to cry out for a deliverer. And Exodus 2.24, God hears their groaning, and he remembers the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. You know, I love that because it highlights something about God. He remembers his covenant. You'll hear people sometimes say, you don't, these covenants don't matter, and yet they matter to God. He acts on the, on, on, like, he acts in accordance with his covenants. He's a promise maker. He's also a promise keeper. And that's what we see here. So he remembers his covenant with Abraham just as he had shown. So he had given that covenant to Abraham about 350 years earlier. 
at this point. So 350 to 400 years earlier. So sojourners and oppressed, God speaks and it was so. So now we go to Exodus, Exodus 3 verse 2, and the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, but the bush doesn't burn. I always love how God makes an entrance. <laughs> like it's never like just kind of casual, hey, how are you doing? But it's, you know, there's cutting covenant with Abraham, and now he's going to meet with Moses, and there's a burning bush that doesn't burn up. And we see that Moses meets with him there. And Exodus 3, 7 to 8, it says, uh, The Lord says to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and bring them out to the land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. This is the promised land. So he remembers the covenant that he had made hundreds of years before to Abraham, and now he is going to deliver. He's going to answer or begin the answer to what he had already said to Abraham. Now, you might ask a question. Some of you might be here asking it already or just interested in the story. But why, why does God wait so long? I mean, why the long time in between? Why the captivity? Why allow those things to happen that way? So we'll look at just a few reasons quickly, and then we'll move on with the story. But the, the uh, first one here, oh, here we go. First, there we go, all four. So God is just. He's just, merciful, and patient. So if you'll recall back in uh, Genesis when, when God was talking to Abram, he said, the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's part of it. So even though God owns the land, and it's actually up to him what he does with his own possessions, it is. He's just and merciful and doesn't just kick people out of their land. He's actually allowing their sin to get to a certain point where he'll judge them by removing them. In Peter, the question is asked again in the New Testament. Why is it, don't think as some do that God is slow in fulfilling his promises, but his desires that none should, pay, uh, should perish. And so we see that familiar pattern throughout Scripture. But he is merciful, he's just, and he's patient. Second reason... He's allowing a group, a family of 70 to become a nation. Remember, they're going to be a great nation. So there's time that it takes for them to become great. And he surely does that. No matter how hard Pharaoh was on the, on the Israelites, they just continued to grow and flourish. That's why Pharaoh was so afraid. Third reason, persecution from the outside actually kept them from assimilating to the culture. And part of being a great nation is being a righteous nation. So it was important, you know, the seed is going to come through that line and they're going to be a righteous nation that's going to bless all the other nations. So God even uses persecution to keep people pure, to keep them set apart. And whether we like that or not, we actually see that same thing happening throughout the world in persecuted countries many times. They seem to hold to the truth more quickly. I'm not saying easier, but more quickly than we do. They don't struggle with the same questions on did God really say in that sense. They're just holding fast and they stay glued to him because he's their only hope. And the fourth reason is so that Israel would know the Lord and ultimately to bless the nations because he was going to use that affliction that came onto them and his deliverance that they would know him and remember that he is the Lord Yahweh that delivered them. So those are just four reasons right there. Now, carrying on with the story. Uh, there we go. Oh, is it coming on the back? That's what's going on. It's all good. Say therefore, this is Exodus 6, 6 to 8. You can't see it on there. Therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I love it how Yahweh, how he signs things. And he does it over and over throughout the Old Testament. But I am the Lord. I will do it. God speaks. Do you remember the last part? God speaks and it was so. Exactly. God speaks and it is so. That is always his pattern. He's, he is true to his word. He's a promise maker. He's a promise keeper. And we should take that to heart when we, when we see both the promised blessing and the warnings in scripture. And when you're tempted to lose heart because your own struggles within your own life. 
There is a promised plan of redemption and restoration that is coming. But back to the story, I am the Lord. So he signs it. It's like he's signed his promise. I am the Lord. So Moses is now sent to Pharaoh with a message, let my people go. Can you imagine being Moses and going to Pharaoh with that message? Wouldn't you be terrified? I'd be terrified. He was terrified. He even tried to get out of it by saying he didn't have eloquent speech. The Lord gets upset at him, but lets Aaron go with. There's a whole story behind that that we don't have time for. But it's a, it's a wonderful story. Anyways, Moses finally, you know, goes to Pharaoh. And this leads to one of the most spectacular showdowns in Scripture. Because you have the superpower of the day, Egypt, with Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods and their magicians, versus Moses. Who's Moses? I mean, to us, we're like patriarch, prophet. I mean, he's amazing. Moses, we all would love to meet Moses. He's not that guy yet. It's just a shepherd. You have Moses and Yahweh coming, and he's terrified to come, but we get the most spectacular showdown, and this is where we see the 10 plagues, which I really love. Um, it's a wonderful story, but it's, it shows a lot about God because you see the plagues increase in intensity. They increase in intensity, and you know, you can get to number 10, death of the firstborn, and say, God, God did that. He did that. He was setting his people go, and he gave Pharaoh many chances to let them go prior to that. And that shows a pattern. Again, we've talked about this before. God is merciful, he is patient, but he is holy and just. Slow to anger, quick to forgive, but he is just, and he warns, disciplines, and judges. So we see water turns to blood. The Egyptian uh, magicians, they're able to match that. So the first you know, sign, the first plague, the Egyptian magicians match it. The second one, it's match for match. So in the combat, you know, in this epic showdown, it's, you know, jab for jab, cross for cross, so far. And then the next eight, like Yahweh just separates himself from any other god or spirit out there. And we see gnats, flies, disease on livestock, boils, hail, locust darkness, and ultimately the death of the firstborn, which is where Passover began. So then we go to the Exodus. So from here, finally, Pharaoh lets them go. He's broken and he lets them go and he sends them away and that's where we get this verse here. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they, had, they let them have what they asked and they plundered the Egyptians. Now what's neat about that, again, if we go back to Genesis, remember not only did God say they would be sojourners and slaves in a foreign land, he also gave the time and then he said, but when I deliver you, you will come out wealthy. And I just love how we see that pattern again. Hundreds of years apart, God speaks and it is so. If you're looking that up, that's Genesis 15. I uh, didn't have time to put everything on the slide. All right, so now we go. Now, why did God deliver them out of the... Oh, I shouldn't put that on there. You didn't see that. If you read the next slide, forget that you read it. So why did God deliver them from the Egyptians? Was it just because the Egyptians were bad? No, maybe that was part of it. They were bad. Was it because, it, oh, I know why God delivered them. Because the Israelites were righteous. I mean, that's what God does, right? Like, he only delivers and saves those who are really, really good. Like, they were a good, good people. I know this seems a little elementary, but I'll put it up here. Because it, there's a point that I want to make. Because the enemy will say, did God really say with these two? It's very simple why God delivered Israel. Number one, because he loved them. Number two, because he said he would. Basic, isn't it? Truth is very simple. He loved them and he said he would. And if he loves them and says he will, he just does it. Because when God speaks, it is so. Yeah, you guys got it. That's how it works. Now, why am I pointing this out? I mean, it's very elementary. Well, there's two reasons. One, the enemy is going to always say, did God really say? Did he really say he loves you? Just because? Did he really say that he would deliver you? There's a message of hope in here for all of us because God has promised that he loves us. And he's also promised that if we put our faith and trust in him, we give him our yes, that he will save us. This, this type of promise has been now extended to all of us. Look what it says here 
in a message of hope for all of us. There we go. God loves us while we were still sinners, and he's promised to save us if we put our faith in him. There we go. Romans 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's read that one together. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. John 3, 16. Let's read that together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's very important that we understand this. Ultimate salvation and redemption and restoration of all things. The solution to all the brokenness in the world ultimately lands on God. The enemy will always try to flip that in your head. He'll always try to get you to think it lands on you first. It lands on you, you do, then God will do. Those ultimate promises of salvation and redemption, God is going to do them whether you say yes to him or whether you reject him. So our choice is, do we want to participate with God? That's really what we're choosing. Are we going to participate with him in his plan, partner with him, or are we going to reject him and work against him? It's really that simple, those two choices. He'll ultimately do it. All right, this is exactly what we see as we navigate the grand story. All of the characters that we've looked at are flawed. Right from the beginning, Right through, you know, Abraham to Noah, Noah to Abraham, or Adam to Noah, Noah to Abraham, we see that all of the characters are flawed. And yet God continues to fulfill his purposes, advance his causes, and he continues to fulfill the promises that he makes. And I love that. So what are the things that we see in common with these, you know, heroes of our faith, these, these you know, men and women that have done great things for God? We see faith in their life. That's what we see. We see sin, we see brokenness, we see mistakes, but we see faith. And faith defined as they give their yes, but it's, it's, it's coupled with action. They give their yes, and then they walk that yes out to the best of their ability. And that faithfulness is critical for us. You know, I said years ago, I, I don't remember when, but, you know, uh, direction is more important than perfection. And sometimes people get the wrong idea with that. Well, you're saying it doesn't matter that we live holy. No, no, I'm not saying that. Strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Absolutely, we strive for holiness. However, no one's going to be holy in this lifetime. Ultimately, the direction is more important than the perfection that you attain in this lifetime. That direction of when you sin, you get back up, you repent, you turn back towards God, you keep taking steps forward. When he says, do this, we do this. When he says, don't do this, we turn and we don't do this. And that's how we follow him. It's very simple in that sense. So how many in here, I'll do a show of hands. How many in here would like to be used by God? Is there anyone? That's good. I love that. That's like everyone? Okay, basically everyone in here wants to be used by God. Well, let me guarantee you something. You will be used by God, guaranteed. There is nothing you can do to prevent yourself from being used by God. What you have to ask yourself is, how do I want to be used by God? As an instrument to demonstrate his great love and mercy? Or as a vessel of wrath to demonstrate his holiness and justice? That's what scripture teaches. Remember years ago, I was begging the Lord. I've shared this here before, begging the Lord. Lord, I just want to be used by you. I want to be used so badly I want to be used. Like just... I'll do anything for you. I wanted the big stuff at the time. Didn't, wasn't doing so good at the small stuff. <laughs> uh, but you start with small steps. Anyways, I just, I'll never forget it. Then I go to Romans 9 and he says, I use everybody. You get to choose. Do you want to participate with me in my purpose that I've created you for and my plan? Or do you want to reject me and I'll use you to demonstrate that I am holy and just? Remember from the stories, did God use Moses? Yes or no? He did. Absolutely yes. Did God use Pharaoh? Ah, see, right? Did God use the people of Israel? Yes. Did he also use the Amorites? Yes. God uses everybody. So we really need to take that to heart when we're doing our devotions and spending time in prayer and say, Lord, how are, how are you using me? Am I participating with you in what you're asking of me? 
in what your word says or am I working against you? We should all ask that. Okay. Just making sure I'm on time. I'm good, I think. All right, back to the story. Immediately after, Israel leaves Egypt. So now they've been sent away and they're going away with all their plunder. They're wealthy. They go from slaves to, to kings almost overnight. Uh, and Pharaoh ends up getting upset and he regrets his decision and he takes all of his military might like that and he begins to chase after them. So he chased after the people of Israel and he gets them cornered, right? You know, they're hemmed in by the Red Sea and he gets them cornered and it's going to be destruction. I mean, a bunch of previous slaves, they're not military, but they're a nation of slaves that, have now, that are wearing nice robes against the mightiest army in the world. And it looks bleak for the people of Israel, but God, God is there, the same God who just performed those 10 plagues, promise maker, promise keeper. He just splits the Red Sea apart like this. There's massive walls of water. He just lifts it. I mean, I guess what's that to God? I can only imagine what that must have been like when you were there. I mean, did the waters roar? Did it sound like crashing waves as they just lifted up like this and spread? Israel walks across the Red Sea on dry land. Miraculous. Absolutely incredible. Like nothing we've ever seen before. And Pharaoh and the armies, they're raging after him and they're coming between. And Yahweh just, I guess with a thought or a word, I'm not sure how he does everything, but he's, he's God. He just lets the water come crashing down and it swallows up the army. Now you think, of course, you know, from, from here, Israel, the, the story is, you know, the, uh, uh, forever and ever, amen, I was going to say, but uh, they lived happily ever after. Well, it's not quite happily ever after, but from here, we see, you know, they go straight to Mount Sinai, and this is where God gives them the second promise, and that's where we're going to focus on now, the, the Mosaic Covenant, okay? So we're going to look at that. It was not happily ever after for them. You know what you actually see on there? I wish I had time to go through the whole story, but we are just doing the, the broad stroke. You know what Israel did again and again? Complained. They're barely on the other side of the Red Sea, and they're complaining that it would have been better back in, in Egypt. I've always been struck by that, but you know why I've been struck by it the hardest? Because I find myself doing the same thing. Right? When I really take stock of my life and I think about how it was when I lived for me, I, I'm like, oh, I would never want to go back there. That slavery was awful. That decade away from the Lord, I never want to repeat. And yet, sometimes the stress hits you and you get worked up and you're anxious and suddenly it feels like, you know what, it'd be easier not to have to say yes all the time. We do that, don't we? As human beings? Yeah, I get it. That's why we all need a savior. But anyhow, let's go to uh, Exodus 19, 5 and 8 here. Okay, so now we're on the Mosaic Covenant and we're going to hit, there, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured, treasured possession amongst all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. I love that. I love it when the Lord says that. He says, you are mine, the earth is mine. He's very possessive. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered and said the same thing. Let's read that last line together. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Do you agree with that statement? I do. That's direction, right? We don't do it perfectly, but that's direction. That's what I want my life to show. All that the Lord has spoken, I will do. As a church, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And when we fail, we're just going to get back up and we're going to try it again. Well, that's, that's how this starts. You know, this covenant is different. Last week, we looked at an unconditional covenant. Promise number one, promise number two, both of them were unconditional. God's going to do it no matter what. But this one here is different. Look at that first line. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So this time we have, it's two-way. It's going to depend on, on the Israelites to do something. It's, it's two-way, and, uh, and, and God's going to do his part if you do your part. So we'll carry on, Exodus 19, 18 to 20. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Now I've done this before. I want you to just close your eyes for a second. Get this imagery. Try to imagine. Think of a mountain. Are you all looking at a mountain in your head? Mount Sinai is wrapped in smoke. It's like the misty mountain. But the Lord, because the Lord had descended on it in fire, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly and the sound of a trumpet grew louder and louder. 
Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called to Moses. He called Moses to the top of that mountain and Moses went up. Love that. You can open your eyes. So Abrahamic covenant, we saw that. That was, uh, that was unconditional. The Mosaic covenant is going to be conditional. And the way God comes down to make this covenant, he does it in absolute style. There is fire that comes down, consumes the mountain. It's full of smoke. There's lightning. There is thunder. There's a trumpet sound. By the way, the seventh trumpet. Trumpets are big in the Bible. You'll see it all throughout uh, scripture. But at the seventh trumpet in the end times, that's when Jesus returns. His last returning to earth is going to also be with the sound of a trumpet. There's a sound of a trumpet. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Thunder, lightning, fire, smoke, trumpet. And the people were terrified. Little wonder they were terrified. I'd be terrified. I'd probably be, I'd just pass out, I think. It's probably more accurate. So let's look at the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant. We'll give a bunch of purposes and then we'll summarize it all together um, for today. First, details for living as a righteous nation. So God is calling them, remember the Abrahamic covenant, they were going to be a great nation, and that's defined by righteousness. Well, now God is going to give them details for how to do that. You know how many details he gave them? 613. Started with 10. 10 commandments. Those are the ones we often think about. But there's 613 details. If you're ever wondering, like, oh God, I wish you'd make it clear what you want from me. Oh, he made it clear. <laughs> Very distinct and clear. 613 points of clarity, okay? It offered temporary covering for sin, revealed the nature of God, his character, and how to have fellowship with him, revealed the nature of mankind, and ultimately just how sinful and broken we are, our inability, right? Because you just think, well, if God would just give us more, if he'd make it clear what he wanted, I was just saying this to my wife this last week, <laughs> I'll be vulnerable, and she rebuked me gently, it was the best thing ever. Anyways, if he would just make it clear what he wants, I would just do it, like I'm not... It's not that I don't want to move forward. I want to move forward. He just, he's not making it clear. This is, you know, sometimes all the voices get, and get at you. Anyhow, she reminded me that ultimately it doesn't matter what anyone else says. It just matters what God is calling me to do. And he has made it clear. And it's like scales fall from the eyes. And you're like, oh yeah, you're right back to it. But anyhow, that's, that's it, right? It reveals mankind, our broken nature. But it also revealed how to fulfill the great command. To love God and love people. That's part of our mission statement. That's what the Ten Commandments are about. First four are all about how to love God, and the last, the last six are all about how to love people. Now, I paraphrase them a little bit to make them easier to understand, but no other gods, no idols, don't misuse God's name, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, honor your father and mother, uh, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, and do not covet anybody's spouse or stuff. The basic ten. This is how you love God, this is how you love people the basic 10, and then he gave them 603 others to help them also know how to govern a nation. Pretty incredible what God did. And then also to prepare us for the, uh, or to prepare Israel for the Davidic and the New Covenant. And you're going to see this as we get into, once we get into the New Covenant especially, you're going to see how all of these just build on to each other. And it's actually just beautiful the way God lays it out. That's why I love going through the grand story and you see it. Because as you see it just go in sequence, all together like this, each one building on the next one, it begins to make sense why it matters what we believe about the end and how we can interpret, you know, Revelation and Daniel and Isaiah and how do we interpret what's, and even Jesus and Matthew, how do we interpret what's going to happen? It makes a lot more sense when you understand how they all fit together, okay? So that is the covenants. Now you're getting a lot of the conditions or what it was for the purpose anyways. So then you have the conditions, and the conditions here, the two main things that I want you to know are it's two-way. It's conditional. Right? So it's conditional. There's blessings for obedience and there's curses for disobedience. Now remember in the Abrahamic covenant, the very first thing he said was, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. That was a promise for those and how we look at Israel. Now he's looking at Israel and saying, now I will also bless you if you obey me, but I will also curse you if you disobey me. And you see that fairness of God, that justice of God working both ways. And totally we see that. So now the conditional nature, how does that work with the Abrahamic covenant? Abrahamic covenant is unconditional and now the Mosaic covenant is conditional. So why the change and why the difference? Think of it like this. So what did the Abrahamic covenant promise? It promised, well, the seed was going to go through, but then it was great nation, 
land, actual land, and then blessing to all nations. The Mosaic Covenant is, is going to come in now and teach them how to remain in that promise. So imagine now God has given me land. He said, go over here. You have this land. I'm giving it to you. I'm going to make you a great nation. Now the Mosaic law is going to, he's going to give it to me to show me how I can stay here as a great nation. Does that make sense? He gave it as a gift. Mosaic covenant is going to show them how they can remain great because ultimately God is just and we see it in scripture. If the Israelites disobeyed, he removed them from the land too because he's just, right? But then you go back to the Abrahamic covenant, you know that ultimately they will have the land and that's where we'll build on it in the subsequent weeks. But for now... We'll finish with these last few points. And that is, the point with the 613 laws, especially the 10, is this. They couldn't keep the law. When you look at the 10 commandments, I, I tried to imagine this last week, what our world would look like, even if you just took one command. Pick any one, and try to imagine what the world looks like if we can just hold to one of them. It's wild what gets undone in the brokenness of, of mankind if we're able to even hold to one of his laws. And yet we can't. And that is ultimately the point. It's proving what God had already said. Every inclination of man's heart is towards evil. And that's why I said in the beginning, I don't, I'm not trying to say anyone in here has committed anything even close to as, as terrible as Hamas terrorists have. What they've done is unspeakable evil, but... The truth of the matter is, when we look at the problem with the world, it's not just terrorism. We look in the mirror and we see our own reflection, and we are part of the problem. We're part of the reason that God needs to come and redeem creation, because all of us sin. And thank God that he loves us. Remember? He said, while we were sinners, he loved us. And thank God that he's promised to save us and redeem us. We get that gift if we just believe in him and we trust in his name. So is the law bad because the law is just kind of revealing how bad we are? No. Paul says in Romans here, the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now did that which is good bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment we might become, or become sinful beyond measure. So Mosaic law promised them, you know, they got the law now at Mount Sinai. Now they're going to move towards the promised land. This is where our story is going to conclude for today. So um, this is an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai to the promised land. If you look on a map, it's an 11-day journey by foot. Guess how long it took them? 40 years. Some of you know the story. Some of you don't. 40 years. So what were they doing? They had lots of Timmies along the way. And they were taking many breaks, a lot of bathroom breaks. No, it wasn't that. It was their own rebellion. And that, there's a whole story to that. But their own rebellion, God didn't even just give them the promised land right away. And we're going to pick up on that story, uh, not next week, because next week Pastor Ray is going to come up. But the next time I'm up, we're going to kind of pick up from there and move forward into the Davidic covenant. But just to quickly summarize the promises that we've looked at so far. So we have the Edenic covenant. And that is the promised seed. It was going to be a man that was going to be a what? Serpent crusher. Yeah, there we go. We get the serpent crusher, but we don't know who the identity is yet. And then that moves forward throughout a whole period of time, but to the next promise, which was an unconditional and eternal promise that was going to get, make them a great nation, was going to give them physical land, and was going to also bless all of the other nations. Now we've moved into the Mosaic Covenant, which has given us, it's conditional, and it's shown them the conditions for staying in that promise. And already when you look at these, like right where we are, you're seeing that the Mosaic Covenant makes it almost impossible for God to fulfill the Abrahamic Covenant eternally. That's the problem that still has to be answered. In their time, it wasn't answered yet. We know what the answer is already in the New Covenant and what's coming, but they didn't yet. So applying what we've learned. Problem. What is the problem with our world? Help me out. Sin. Absolutely yes. Okay? That's yes. Every inclination of man's heart is towards evil. All right? So that's the problem with, with mankind. Now, what we've looked at so far with the stories, did the perfect conditions given to people fix the problem of sin? No. Did different political parties or governing authorities fix the problem of sin? Hmm, interesting. Did God's revealing himself like in powerful ways, like 
showing up and doing big miracles fix the problem of sin? Did it matter where they were on the map, geographical location? No. Did the perfect law fix the problem? One plan, one hero, Jesus the only way. There is no other fix for the problem that we see in the world. One way, Jesus. If you're here today and you haven't put your faith and trust in him, I'm gonna pray for you right now and you can do that. If you're here and you feel like you've been sitting on the fence, then you can recommit yourself to him right now one plan, one hero of this story, one fix to the problems in your life and in this world. Bow your heads, Lord Jesus. We've tried so many things in our life to fix anxiety, addiction. We look at war, terrorism. We're just torn apart. Oh, someone just needs to do something about that or someone needs to fix that. Then we look, you know, in our world and we see racism and people turning on each other because the color of their sin skin. Lord, we see your sexual ethic being thrown out and the result, it was supposed to bring people happiness and the result, people are more torn apart and confused today than ever before. No law that has been instituted, no government that has been elected, no power of yesterday or today, and no choice we can make has fixed us other than the one choice to trust in your plan to trust in your son, Jesus. Today, Lord, we declare that you are, Jesus, you are the son of God. You came and lived the perfect life. You died for our sins, for my sin. You were risen back to life, you resurrected, and yet now you reign next to the Father. And we know that you have promised to return and end evil and death once and for all. And when you speak, it is so. So today, we put our whole trust and our heart and our life into your hands. Whatever is your way is our way.